you want to turn with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 12, where we'll continue our study through this chapter this morning. So for those of you that were with us last week, we looked at this anointing of our Lord by Mary, the sister of Lazarus. The first part of John chapter 12, we saw an entrance into the final week of our Lord's earthly ministry. That is, a week before the Passover, six days before the Passover, where our Lord will be offered up as the perfect Passover lamb. And we saw this great act of Mary that this act of devotion, of love toward our Lord and worship, she anoints his feet with this very expensive oil, this very expensive perfume, not only foreshadowing our Lord's coming burial and his coming death, but as we talked about last week, pointing beyond his death to his coming resurrection from the grave, that as the true anointed one, as we just talked about, the prophet, priest, and king of God's people, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, he would come and not only die for his people, but rise again from the dead. And we looked last week that this amazing act of Mary is contrasted with Lazarus, one of the 12 disciples who, while pretending to be pious and holy, actually scolds Mary for this act. But he does this not because he actually cared about the poor, but because he wanted to take some of the money that would have been given. He wanted to steal. And so we talked last week about the importance of seeing the worth and the value of Christ, that Mary truly saw the worth and the value and the glory of Christ, and Judas did not. He would rather have money, wealth, fame, He did not care about Christ truly, and that we saw last week that honoring Christ for who He is and what He has done, not for the selfish things that He can give us. We need to get the person of Christ right, and we'll see that theme continue in our passage this morning as we look to the triumphal entry the triumphal entry. Now, many of us are familiar with this passage, right? If you've ever been to another church where maybe they celebrate Palm Sunday, they'll get a bunch of palm branches in and every, all the kids will be waving them. But we'll see that what's going on in this passage might not be what we think is going on. That we'll see the crowds are gathering, they're coming around, they're seeking to give honor to our Lord, they're waving palm branches, they're calling him the king, they're calling for this salvation. But we'll see that as we look deeper to what's going on in this passage, that they've actually misunderstood not only the nature of Christ's coming, but the purpose of his coming. That in many ways, those that were gathered there were looking for sort of an earthly salvation. And that in doing this, they have missed the true purpose of Christ's coming and really of Christ's kingdom. That as we walk through this passage this morning, hopefully we'll see that Christ came first as the lowborn king, the one that would humble himself by taking on the form of a servant, that he came to bring something much greater than an earthly kingdom. He came to bring a heavenly one. And we'll see that this is not only the fulfillment of all of God's promises, even in the Old Testament, but it's our greatest need this morning. So I'm going to read our passage. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's word. We'll begin at verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. 
The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that is the feast of Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the grace that you've given us in Christ, that as we come this morning to your word, we have your promise that your word will not return to you void, but it will accomplish all that you purpose. And our prayer this morning is that you would use your word to accomplish all of your purposes this morning, that those that know Christ might be strengthened as they see the glory and the value and the worth of Christ and his coming and his kingdom that we would rest in Christ alone this morning and receive all that he has done for sinners like us. And that if we do not know the Lord, that we would be changed this morning, that our hearts would be made new by your Spirit, and that we would see our only hope is the new creation that Christ can bring, the coming of his kingdom. We ask and pray that you would do these things by the power of your Spirit, that we would see the true glory and worth of Christ and that we would come to be found in him alone this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at three different things as we go through this passage. First, we're going to look at the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry. We'll see that recorded for us in verses 12 through 13. Next, we'll look at Christ, the lowborn king. We'll look at the lowborn king in verses 14 through 15. And then finally, we'll look at the great misunderstanding in the following verses. So we see in verse 12 that there is a large crowd that is gathered, a large crowd that is gathered for this feast of Passover. Now, we've talked about this several times as we've gone through John's gospel. There's these three big festivals in the life of the people of Israel, and each time, every three times a year, people would gather for these great feasts right? Whether it's the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, the people would come from all over Israel and come and gather at the capital city, Jerusalem. Now, some people estimate that the city would increase in size by as much as three times. So everybody is flocking to the capital city, Jerusalem, for this Feast of Passover. And some of these people hear that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. He's finally on his way to Jerusalem. The one that had raised Lazarus from the dead is on his way to Jerusalem. Now, a couple things to note here. This is significant for several reasons. 
Why is it important that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem? First, we see not only is it the capital city, it's the capital city of Israel. It's where the people would gather for these feasts. It's the temple where the city, or it's the city where the temple was, rather. But we see that it's also identified as the great city of David. It's identified as the great city of David, the city of kings. There's all this messianic meaning baked into the city of Jerusalem. You go to 2 Samuel chapter 5, you'll see that it's called the city of David. It's called the city of David. Now David, obviously, was this great king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel. He was the one that conquered all of the enemies of God's people, brought peace to the land, and brought peace to God's people. And so you can see why this might be significant that Christ is coming to the city of Jerusalem. But secondly, we see that Jerusalem is this central city in Old Testament messianic prophecy. That Jerusalem, in many ways, is referred to throughout the Old Testament. That there would be a figure that would come from Jerusalem and would save the people of Israel. You go to Isaiah chapter 2. And you see these words that the word of the Lord will go forth from Mount Zion and will go forth from the city of Jerusalem. So there's all this messianic expectation, this messianic promises centered in the Old Testament. And this is all coming forward as we see John reveal that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. There's this connection between this city and the messianic king to come. And we can see this because of what happens next, how the people respond. Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, is coming, and the people do this. In verse 13, it says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Okay, So the people are beginning to make this connection between Jesus, Jerusalem, and this promised messianic king. Not only in their actions by what they do, but with their words. Or I kind of like to say it like this. It's sort of a tongue twister. They didn't only wave palms, but they quoted psalms. Okay, Try to say that ten times fast. I almost messed it up just saying that, okay? So we see two things. They not only waved palms, but they quoted psalms. So we see first that they, they had this action. They take these branches of palm trees. In the other gospel accounts, we learn that they laid them down as Jesus is going. And we see that this idea of palm trees, these branches signified kingship and victory, right? They were this token of joy and of celebration. We even saw that as we looked at Revelation chapter 7. So they not only take these palm branches and wave them, this kind of signification of kingship, of victory, but they also quote from Psalm 118 verses 25 through 26. We see that recorded in verse 13. They cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which is really kind of a translation, which translates to save us, O Lord. Save us, O Lord. It's this call for salvation. Hosanna, save us, O Lord. But not only are they calling out for salvation, they're acknowledging Christ is the King of Israel. If you see there in verse 13, it says, even the King of Israel. So they're acknowledging that Christ is a type of of king. They're acknowledging not only this call of salvation, but Christ's kingship. 
Now, if you were to go back to Psalm 118, it's what we call a messianic psalm. I would argue that I think it was Jim Ranahan that said all of the psalms are messianic, right? Okay, but in particular, Psalm 118 is pointing forward to the work of the Messiah. We see this picture of a righteous king that's going to enter through the gates of the city, bringing with him salvation and blessing, okay? So the people, in many senses, are right in quoting Psalm 118. They see Christ. They see him enter the city of kings, and they see him coming, and they're calling out for salvation. They're acknowledging him as king, and so they are getting aspects of this right, but we see that they have also misunderstood. They've also misunderstood. They're quoting it for the wrong reasons, that these people were expecting a conquering king, not a king who would come and suffer. They were looking for an earthly salvation, not a salvation from their sin. They were expecting a physical deliverance from the Roman oppressors and not a deliverance from the kingdom of darkness. They weren't expecting a king that was going to suffer, that was going to die, and that was ultimately going to be crucified. And this is sort of the irony of the triumphal entry. And this leads us to our second point this morning, the low-born king. The low-born king. That the people did not understand rightly what was going on. That similar to Judas, the crowds have gotten the person person of Christ wrong. They've misunderstood not only his person, but his work. Not only the nature of his coming, but the purpose of his coming all together. And we see this confirmed for us in the following verses. Notice Jesus doesn't say anything. He doesn't respond to what they did by speaking or anything like that. He responds with a singular profound act. He simply sits on a donkey's colt. Kind of interesting. He doesn't say anything. He, doesn't, he just sits down on a donkey's colt and rides into the city. Now, a donkey's colt is a young donkey, a donkey that hasn't been ridden on before. And if we think about it, this is kind of an odd response to what they're doing, right? They're calling him this great king, and he sits down on a donkey. Now, if he's this great king, we might expect him not to ride in on a donkey, but on this great horse, right? This is what kings did. They rode in on horses, and they're showing that they're ready for war, that they've conquered the enemy. This is what we might expect, but this is why it's important to see that Jesus is the low-born king. That the reason for this is that donkeys were symbols not of war, but of peace, <laughs> right? A donkey isn't that useful in a war. Have you ever seen a person ride a donkey into battle? Okay, that's not going to get you very far. Donkeys were really only useful during times of peace, right? They were used for plowing, for working in the fields, laboring, harvesting, right? They were not very useful in times of war, but rather times of peace. But when it was wartime, when it was time for battle, a donkey is virtually useless, you need a mighty horse to ride into battle, to ride into war, not a humble donkey. And this is what makes what Jesus did so jarring, so shocking, so odd on its surface. This is unexpected. 
The people, as we said, are expecting an earthly deliverance. They're expecting this Messiah that will bring them political freedom, conquering the Roman enemies. They expect him to ride in on a horse for battle and come and free them politically. But instead, he's seated on a lowly donkey. <laughs> okay? If you look at the older translations, it says a different word. Okay? Why is this? Why does Jesus do this? Why does he come in and sit on a lowly donkey? We see that this is not only to fulfill what the prophet Zechariah had spoken, but it's to show us the true nature of Christ's kingdom. To show us the true nature of Christ's kingdom. That firstly, we see that this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that we see here quoted in verse 15, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And we see in this Old Testament prophecy the promise of a Messiah, of a Christ, the true King that would come and bring salvation for His people. Deliverance, right? Redemption, true righteousness. It says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt that he would come humble and mounted on a donkey. As Isaiah 53 says, that this servant would come with no former majesty that we should look upon him, no beauty that we should see, no external nature to this one that's going to come, that's going to cause us to follow him, no former majesty that we should look upon him. That this humble donkey is showing us not just a fulfillment of prophecy, but really the true nature and purpose of Christ's coming and His kingdom. That He came not as a conquering king, but as the low-born king. We see that Christ truly is the king in these verses, right? He doesn't deny what they say. They call Him the king of Israel. He doesn't say, no, that's not me. Christ is the king. He is the one that rides into Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of kings, the true anointed one, the true and rightful king of all the world. But we see he comes not to bring war, but peace. Not riding on a horse, but on a donkey. But this peace that he's bringing is not going to be between the Jews and the Romans, but between a holy God and sinful people. The true Prince of peace, peace, and that this king is not the king that these people wanted. The king that is coming is not the king that these people wanted. It's not the solution that they hoped for. That Christ has come as the lowborn king, lowly, humble, meek, and mild, riding on a donkey's colt, not born in a palace with all the things that come with that. But where was he born? In a manger. He came first not to conquer, but to suffer and to die. To take upon himself the sin of his people, conquering not our earthly enemies, but our spiritual ones, sin, Satan, and this evil world. Born to set his people free, not from Roman rule, not from earthly bondage, not from political tyranny, but from the rule of Satan from the bondage of our sin and the tyranny of this evil age. This is the kingdom that Christ came to bring. This is the true nature of His coming, and the people 
missed it. And that leads us to our third point this morning, the great misunderstanding. The great misunderstanding. We see that throughout this passage, there's three different people that misunderstand. First, we see the crowds misunderstand. We see first that the crowds misunderstand. They miss this truth. They do not understand rightly why Christ came. They're expecting one thing, and they get something else. Now, we could argue maybe some of them understood partly. Maybe even some of them will later go to understand even further. But we see, if you look a little bit further in John chapter 12, in verse 37, as is common throughout John's gospel, we see the final what is really going on in the hearts of these people. It says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. Right? John reveals to us later that these same crowds that will cry out, Hosanna, are the ones that will ultimately at his death cry out, crucify him, right? John tells us that they're sign seekers. They're after these miracles, these signs that Jesus can do, and not after him because he is the Savior of sinners. They wanted external glory. They wanted political freedom. They didn't want the true, humble, low-born king. But we see that they're not the only people that misunderstand. The Pharisees misunderstand. We see that in verse 19 that all the Pharisees see is all these people following Jesus, and they do not understand rightly why he has come. And so it's kind of ironic. They start condemning each other. If you look at verse 19, they say, you see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. It's almost as if they're saying, see, he's gaining followers. We've waited too long. We need to stop messing around and put him to death right now. Okay, we've waited too long. We've waited enough, and this man needs to be put to death. And so, as one commentator said, there's sort of a double irony happening with this observation by the Pharisees. Not only have they misunderstood these crowds, they think they're following him, and they're going to go into the city and make him king, right? This kind of, um, what's it called, insurrection. The crowds are going to ultimately leave Jesus, so they've misunderstood that. But the second irony is that it's actually by Christ's death that he is going to be the one that is spoken of in the whole world, both Jew and Gentile. So the crowds have misunderstood. The Pharisees have misunderstood why Christ came. And the disciples, we see finally, that even they have not understood fully why he came. Even the disciples have not understood why Jesus came. They're probably looking around like at each other. Why is he coming on a donkey? Why is he coming on this lowly colt of a donkey? Where's his sword? Where is his sword? If he really is the king that these people say he is, where is his kingdom? Okay, they would have been asking all these sorts of questions. And in the moment, they did not know or fully understand the significance of this act. And we see in verse 16, John actually tells us this. (laughs) It says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. That in the moment, as these things are happening, his disciples did not even understand why this was going on. It is only after Christ's glorification, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and the special endowment of the Spirit given to the apostles to write Holy Scripture that they remember 
record and realize the significance of this act. If you go to John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus promises the the disciples in the upper room that I'm going to give you the Spirit, and He's going to teach you all things, and He's going to cause you to remember all that has been done. And so we see this played out even before this happens in John chapter 12. The Spirit causes John to remember these things, to make this connection to Zechariah chapter 9, and show him the true significance of this act, that this messianic king promised in the Old Testament would come first on a humble donkey, that the ruler of the world would humble himself by taking the form of a servant, and he would come first not to conquer by the sword, but by suffering. And this is what makes Christ's work of redemption so amazing as we sit here and think about why this is so important. That throughout his earthly ministry, Christ was tempted to take a shortcut. He was tempted to forego the suffering that was set before him, to forsake obedience to the Father, and to actually form an earthly kingdom. Whether it was Satan in the temptation in the wilderness telling Jesus, bow down to me, worship me, and what? I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. He's tempting him to have this earthly kingdom. Or maybe it's the 5,000 in John chapter 6 that want to come and take Jesus by force, and John tells us to make him king. The people want this worldly king that can do miracles, that can feed them bread miraculously. Jesus is tempted to take and accept this worldly kingship. Or maybe it's the people that are gathered on the cross at Christ's crucifixion, taunting him and mocking him, saying, if you really are the king, you'll come down and save yourself, right? Tempting him to forego his suffering. If you really are who you say you are, if you really are the king, come down, stop suffering, save yourself. But we see here that Jesus came not to win by the sword, but to suffer and to die, to take the punishment that our sin deserved, to humble himself on a lowly donkey as the lowborn king, taking the wrath of God for our sin. That's the only hope that you and I have this morning. If Christ didn't come as the lowborn king that rode on a donkey, you and I are lost. But we can thank God this morning that in Christ, God has made a way. <laughs> he sent Christ as the low-born king, that it is only through the cross of Christ that sinners can be justified before a holy God. It is only through the agonizing death of the last Adam that the work and sin and curse of the first Adam might be brought to nothing. It's only through the perfect work of the suffering servant that we might be delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. This is why Christ came as He did. This is why He came humble, lowly, and seated on a donkey. And so as we walk away from this passage and we, as we begin to contemplate and think about what does this passage mean for us and how can we apply this to our lives, the first thing that we need to see is that we must be careful not to misunderstand 
the nature and the purpose of Christ's coming and of His kingdom. We must be careful not to misunderstand not only the nature and purpose of Christ's coming, but also of His kingdom. That this is what we see in our passage, whether it's the crowds that misunderstood, they wanted an earthly king, the Pharisees that misunderstand, even the disciples that did not fully see what was going on, they all misunderstood, and the temptation is the same in our day. Whether it is the political gospel of social justice that says Jesus came to bring social justice to the world, or the false gospel of prosperity theology that says Jesus came to give you wealth and health and wholeness. Or maybe it's the error that's often called theonomy or reconstructionism, right, that seeks to set up an earthly kingdom on this world and seeks to set up a physical kingdom of God. All of these, at some level, misunderstand the nature and the purpose of Christ's coming and His kingdom, thinking that Jesus came to bring social justice, that He came to make you healthy and wealthy, right? Or that He came to set up this earthly kingdom on the earth. All of these miss, to varying degrees, the true nature of Christ's kingdom. That Christ came first, not as a conquering king, but as we've said so many times, as the lowborn king. He would come not to make everybody wealthy and prosperous, but to take our sin upon Himself and purchase for us the riches of salvation. He came not to bring a kingdom of this world, but a spiritual kingdom, what He calls the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom of the new creation. This is what we call the already and the not yet, if you're familiar with this language. The already and the not yet. That this kingdom that Christ came to bring has begun in the souls of His people. This work of the new creation, giving them a new heart with new affections. He inaugurated at His coming. It's begun already, but it will not be consummated till the last day. And so it's spiritual in its nature. It's not yet physical in that sense. That in Christ, you and I are what's called new creations. That's what Paul will refer to the church as. These new creations in Christ. That the, the, the age to come has crashed into this present age in our very souls. But as you and I know, we are not yet perfected. We're not yet glorified. And so this is what we mean when we say already and not yet. This is what Christ came to bring. Salvation begun in the souls of God's people And this is what the world can't understand. It wants a physical kingdom. It wants to bring all of these things, external glory, worldly power and dominion. And if you go to John chapter 18, a couple couple verses later, we see that even Pontius Pilate doesn't understand this. That right before our Lord is delivered over to be crucified and suffer and die, Pontius Pilate, this Roman governor, starts questioning him. And Pilate is confused. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. He, he looks at Jesus and he says to him, aren't you the king of the Jews? Aren't you the king? Aren't you the promised one? He doesn't understand. Your people have just betrayed you. Your nation has betrayed you. He doesn't understand how Christ is both the king and being delivered over by his people. He says to him, essentially, your kingdom is falling apart. 
It appears to be in ruins. But Jesus turns to Pilate and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. That Christ and the kingdom that Christ came to bring is not a kingdom of this world, but a kingdom of the new creation, begun by the Spirit in the hearts of God's people, saving them from their sin and misery, convincing, subduing, and drawing them to Himself, upholding them, delivering them, preserving them till the last day. And this King that by faith has brought us now even to the heavenly Jerusalem will bring us on that last day to His heavenly kingdom. And it's a good reminder for us this morning that this king that came at first, lowly and mild, will on the last day return. The king that came riding on a lowly donkey will on that last day come on a great white horse ready for war. That the king will return to execute his perfect justice and wrath on sin. We read about this in Revelation chapter 19. We see these sobering words. John's vision of the final day. John says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That this king who came lowly will return again. He will come on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth in judgment, in war. And so the the call for us this morning, as we see this picture, is to run to Christ. He's our only refuge. He is our only hope. He's not only the one that can save us, but he's the one that took our sins upon himself. The punishment that you and I deserve, the wrath for our sin, he took upon himself as the lowborn king, the suffering servant, so that we might have peace with God. And we see in this passage a sobering reminder that all those that are not found in Christ on the last day will suffer His wrath and His perfect justice. That the rulers of this world will seek to hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. But for those that are found in Christ, as we read this morning, clothed in the white robes of His righteousness, with palm branches in their hands, falling down before the throne of the great king, they will cry out, salvation belongs to the Lord, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. 
we thank you that you have sent your son in the fullness of time who was born of a woman and born under the law, the low-born king that would come to suffer and die for his people that had rejected him, that had spit in his face and denied his kingship. But in the fullness of time, he came to conquer not only his enemies, but to conquer us, (laughs) to, to win us back to him. That by his work on the cross, pain for us, by his perfect and spotless blood, we might be brought to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the beloved son. And so this morning, we, we rest in Christ alone. We run to him knowing that there's salvation in no other name. And may this morning we bow down before the great king, bringing before him our sin and saying, take, I cannot pay for this on my own. Would we come before you this morning, trusting and knowing that if we are in Christ, we have true salvation, that we have no need to fear the day of judgment, that we have Christ and his righteousness alone to stand before a holy God. Would we rest in that this morning? And as we go through our week, would we rest in Christ alone for salvation? We thank you and praise you for all that you've done and that you would be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.